Welcome to Tech Deciphered. We bring you the entrepreneur and investor views on big tech, VC, and startup news, opinion pieces, and research. We decipher their meaning and add inside knowledge and context. Being nerds, we also discuss gadgets and pop culture news. Hi, I'm your co-host, Nun Gonçalves Pedro. I'm an investor, and I'm the co-founder and managing partner at Strive Capital. And I am your co-host, Bertrand Schmidt, tech entrepreneur and co-founder of App Annie. We have both been in tech for almost 25 years. Nuno is based in Silicon Valley, while I am based in the greater Seattle area, having previously worked and lived in Europe and Asia. With Tech Deciphered, discover how the best entrepreneurs pitch, how investors think, and what are the deep trends underlying the tech industry. You can check the latest on our website, decipheredshow.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter, at B. Schmidt and at NG Pedro. If you enjoyed the show, do us a favor. Subscribe, give us five stars and or leave a review on Apple Podcasts app or your favorite app. This will help other people discover Tech Deciphered. So welcome to episode 21 of Tech Deciphered. This will end our first season of Tech Deciphered by taking a look back at 2020, as well as looking at what's going to happen, at least from our perspective, in 2021. Of course, we'll talk about COVID as well. For those who have not listened to some of our previous episodes, we had episodes looking back at the 2010s, that previous decade. This was episode 10A, 10B. We had also an overarching look at the coming decade, the 2020s with episode 11, 12, and 13. And we also had in the past an episode focused on COVID, episode 9A and 9B. As a result, we'll try to make this episode shorter so that we don't spend too much time talking about stuff we previously discussed just five, six months ago. We'll start with that recap on 2020. Nuno, welcome back. Yes, well, I think to start the recap on 2020 is to start with COVID and to start with the difficult time that many have gone through with COVID. So maybe as a as a start, and I know this is not very classic in podcasts, maybe we could start with a moment of silence for those or in memory of those that passed away because of COVID and those that have suffered so much because of COVID. So maybe we'll do a quick moment of silence. And so... Starting with that sad note, 2020 was an interesting year. On the COVID side, clearly what we've observed is what I would call a yo-yo effect in most Western countries, where we close and then we open and then we close and then we open. And clearly COVID hasn't really been under control under most of the countries that we can probably recall in Western markets. Where we've seen Asia in some ways, and many countries in Asia Pacific, taking the lead on this with more or less aggressive measures. A lot of control around traveling, like Australia, New Zealand, Taiwan. Very aggressive controlling on movement of people and really in figuring out how people actually were interacting, like China, for example. More or less science-based control, like, for example, South Korea, which has had a little bit of a yo-yo effect, but certainly their yo-yo effect is not comparable to what we've seen in my home country of Portugal, what we've seen in the US. So a little bit of back and forth. Clearly, some countries that have been more aggressive about managing this have managed it, and it seems under control. Others have really totally messed it up. 
Yeah, I guess we really have a big gap between Asia from China, Taiwan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand, Vietnam that have had the virus and very good and tight control bringing a normal life uh, to their citizens. Having to close fully bordered to, to achieve that, you have two weeks quarantine and it's hardcore. You have to stay in a hotel uh, close to the airport. You are forbidden a lot of things during that two weeks period. And you have the Western world, US, Europe, where it feels it was not at all under control. And for me, what's interesting is whatever the politician in power, we feel that the results are more or less the same. The difference is not so big. US, UK, France, Germany, Portugal, as you said, of course, there's been some differences, but in the grand scheme of things, it feels more an abject failure of controlling the virus from the get-go. And I think if you didn't control it from the get-go, it's pretty hard to come back because then it's too much out of control. Even countries that seem to have done well in the first place, Portugal was a great example of that, with very heavy-duty testing, very aggressive enforcing, seem to have gone through the wrong side. Obviously, I don't want to talk politics too much because that's not probably our area of expertise or what we should spend most of our time on. But certainly countries that mess up after they do well, countries that do well after they mess up, but it seems like we're going back and forth. We'll talk about the future in 2021 and what we foresee. Obviously, There are now vaccines, so that's the good news. We'll talk about the outlook on those when we talk about 2021. But yeah, using American football's analogy, it's a total fumble. It's just government just messed up in ways that can't really be explained. Yeah, and we have seen some extreme. I mean, during that time in the US uh, is a new H-1B visa program. And it's already very tough under COVID to travel. So if you add on top of it a new visa restriction, we'll see how it goes. But I'm pretty sure there are very few people coming. And that's not a good thing. I think especially the US has been a country built on immigration, skilled and unskilled. And not having skilled immigration coming in will be a long-term problem for the U.S. if it's not changed. So that's definitely a worry for me. But if we look at even more practical thing, we talk about U.S. versus Asia. In Asia, you can come back, actually, if you're a citizen or a permanent resident. You have to go through two weeks of painful quarantine. But I'm a French citizen, and today... I cannot come back to France. <laughs> I need to have a very, very strong reason as judged by the government to come back. I don't have an option to be two weeks in quarantine and I can come back. My point is that it's very surprising to me how some rules are being put in place right now. There is yeah. a wide variety of rules, but I have the impression that by default, Western countries were picking the wrong rules, not the ones that work, but the ones that maybe are good for the show. As you say, we're not here to do politics, but politics have been impacting us more than usual. More than usual. This past 12 months. And I think we're also in an interesting situation where we can compare more easily across countries. Because right now we are facing a global phenomenon and it's happening more or less at the same time for everyone. And we can see the choice of politics very clear cut, as well as directly their impact. And it's not always the case. Often you have arguments about, you know what, one country does this, but you know you have to see that in the bigger context. Yeah. And not everyone doing it at the same time. Here, let's take the vaccine, for instance. <laughs> it's very interesting what's happening right now. You can rank countries. Israel, number one. You see the UK, number two. US, not so bad, actually. Most European countries failing 
miserably in their deployment. And basically, there is nowhere to hide because we have yeah. these databases that are public, that are visible, that are filled by volunteers. And in some ways, I find this pretty fantastic to see that for the first time, this clear competition in a way from a positive side. And I think some governments are finally getting more pressure. It's obviously combined with a more bottom-up approach, thanks to Twitter, where people can see what's happening, can see on the web, can complain, and can put pressure on their own government about what's happening and why isn't it moving faster and please stop the bullshit because we see that other countries or state doing so much better. So for me, there is an interesting development. I'm not sure it will be there to stay, but where there is this level of global competition that is enabled by data, by Twitter, by different platforms. And that part gets me excited and potentially I could foresee the rise of some new politicians in the coming years going forward that are maybe more tired about the bullshit and are more focused on the data. What do you think? Am I daydreaming? No, I don't think so. I think the you identified something very unique, which is this ability to truly benchmark governments, their ability to act on things and their effectiveness, uh, which is very unique because it's a global phenomenon. Everyone's under the same light and doesn't matter if it's a democratic country or not. It's like, are you being efficient or not with uh, what you have? So I think that's very powerful. But maybe, um, you know, switching to, I think, a, a sort of a, a tale of two cities, a tale of two worlds, right? One is the physical world, which in some ways we've been talking quite a bit about. And because of COVID has become increasingly siloed. It's more difficult to travel. It's more difficult to go and spend time in a specific area. People are less mobile in some ways in what I would call short-term mobility, like the classic business travel, the weekend over here or the weekend over there. But at the same time, we've had a, and maybe moving to more positive topics, we've had a really interesting positive side effect of COVID which is the world has become definitely more digital and forcibly so. So we've probably advanced more in one year than many would say we would have advanced in five to 10 years. It was a forced mechanism for the world to go digital. And I would add to that a tremendous democratization of, of a variety of things. You know, the flows of capital have become a little bit more democratized. Uh, you know, it is easier now for a company that's based in another part of the world to try and raise money, for example, at an early stage from a venture capital firm or from an angel investor in some ways, because everyone has sort of similar access. So I'm obviously oversimplifying what's going on, but there is a lot of dynamics that are going on that have been enabled by this forced digitization of the world. And that's very positive. It's very positive. It's also led to more and more remote work, which as we know is more efficient in its nature, which we've seen is probably not less effective either. It's led to a lot of dynamics around the flows of capital and intellectual property and other things that have been really fascinating to me. And that's all been very positive. So we are going to remember 2020 for being a tragic year, a year of a lot of pain, a year where, as you were saying earlier, Bertrand, we started to notice governments more than we should and politicians more than we should. But it's at the same time a world where we finally are getting what we wanted in terms of digitization, core digitization, access to channels, ability to do things while at home on our computer or mobile phone. That's incredible. And some of this was just leapfrogging. We just had things that just leapfrogged where we were before. We've talked about in the past, the fall of regulations and stuff. So again, very positive outcome, I think, on that side of the fence. I agree with you, of course, because like you, I'm in the digital space. I've been living the digital transformation personally, professionally, looking forward for 
even more of it faster. You just wish it doesn't come at the expense of so much pain. And obviously for some people, they probably don't share the same perspective. And if you are not all in digital, it must have been incredibly painful to go through that. But I agree on the long term, it's something that would have happened. We have probably won five, ten years, I don't know, in terms of uh, forced digitalization. And I agree. I think it's in the grand scheme of things, something good for the general population. But for sure, some have felt the pain. Um, if you take work from anywhere, I've been a big fan and proponent for a few years, but in some ways now I feel I can do it no problem because I don't have to travel. People are fine talking to me, even if I'm not on site, even if we're not meeting face to face because no one is meeting face to face anyway. And we'll talk more about it because as you say, it has been the end of some short term travel, but in a way, some more longer term transformation at least for some people, and I will talk more about my personal situation or yours. It's a world that has enabled some more structural change in our lives. Talking about public markets, I think that's one big thing to talk about. It's how much has changed. If we look back how it all started, me, I was definitely fearing the crash that took a bit to happen, but finally happened. What I was expecting is that at some point, some level of recovery I was definitely not expecting a recovery so fast. This is not a recovery. This is not a recovery. This is a bubble. It's a bubble. You're right. And that's probably the part I missed. And it's my mistake probably was to miss two things. One, the size of the stimulus plan directly and indirectly. Indirectly being the central banks, of course, printing money. Directly, it's different stimulus plan we got and more to come. What I also missed, uh, so one was missing the impact on size so fast. Usually it took a while. This time it was near instantaneous. <laughs> it took a month or two to come, mm. which is insane. But two was how wrong some all of this was in the sense that this money all went to the wrong pockets. When you see, and we can talk more about it, but yes, a lot of people were impacted, but proportionally not so many. Proportionally to the size of the economy, not so much, especially after the first effect of COVID was over. The first effect was, of course, devastation. Nobody knows what's happening. You have to cut everything and you don't even have masks to protect yourself. And actually, let's not forget most politicians telling us masks were not needed. But my point is that after that first episode and you start to learn more about the issue and you start to discover more how you deal with it so not everything is totally broken, then the economy went back somewhat. But at the same time, we launched this massive stimulus in a way totally indiscriminately. The money has not been going to the people in need. The money has been going to people who didn't need the money and ultimately went to the stock market. I would agree with the base point that you're making that there was a lot of money distributed indiscriminately, both to individuals and also, as we now know, the PPP loans in the US that were distributed uh, to businesses. We know many shouldn't have gotten the money, many that got the money shouldn't have, etc. I wouldn't make the blanket statement that it all went to the wrong hands. I am sure that much of it actually went to the right hands, the people that actually needed the money, both on the business side where I actually have a bunch of cases, but also on the individual side. I would agree with you fundamentally that the way that it was given indiscriminately created a rush on the public markets that we've seen a lot of the money that's fueling 
what some people now call the meme economy. It's not the new economy like it was in 2000 or 99, but the meme economy, a lot of that money has come from these checks. And so we would agree on that. I would also agree with you that the way that this was done indiscriminately was poor, certainly in the US, which is where we live and where we can probably talk a little bit about. Looking at what other countries have done in the past, I remember the 2007-2008 crisis and how China deployed capital back to markets and how it linked it to consumption of specific goods that it wanted to stimulate in the market. I feel the way it was done in the US was just, here's a blanket check, go and do whatever you want. And then people are shocked that people are just betting in public markets. What would you expect? So in some ways, I agree with the base point. I just would not say it's blanket. I would recognize that it was not done well, uh, both on the PPP side, but also on the individual side. Many that got the money shouldn't have gotten the money, also agreed. But in, in some cases, there needed to be people that would get this money in any case. And I think the way the distribution was done, the linkages of that cash that was given to people to specific actions that they would do with that cash, I think could have been much more purposeful. But anyway, it is where we are. And so the public markets have just been fueled to this gigantic bubble, which to be honest, I think might be the largest ever. After coming out of a bull market that had, as you said, this little dip going down and this crash, and then it just went back again. We're in epic levels and, and this can't end well. I don't know when it will end, but this can't end well. To dig a bit more on this topic, there was this very interesting article from the New York Times about why markets boomed in a year of human misery. And actually, it's very interesting to see ultimately a lot came back to <laughs> government intervention. It's not the market being insane. It's a government reaction that was probably not appropriate. I think providing an unemployment insurance, of course, you want to provide some level of unemployment insurance when stuff are deeply wrong, going wrong, and so much uncertainty. But at some point, when you add stimulus check to people who don't need them, an unemployment insurance that push people not to take the new job that is opening up, and we can talk more about this, but I think there has been a lot of lost, of course, opportunities. But especially now, today, I keep reading articles about actually how employers have trouble to hire. They are saying it's back to 14, 15 months ago. It's simply very difficult to find people willing to do the work. And for me, that's amazing. On one side, we are hearing that it's a terrible situation for a lot of people, a lot of families. And at the same time, you hear, hey, I want to hire, but people don't want to join us. And maybe it's because the cushion is too nice. And why would people work if they have very nice benefits not working? So that's a pretty big issue. And I think what's probably happening also is a mismatch. People want to do that one type of job, but this type of job that they were used to or that they like, is not available right now, but by providing too much cushion, we are not incentivizing people to take the new type of jobs that are opening up in a new economy. And as you say, an economy that is probably more digital or that has a different business model that is more efficient. Can take restaurants, for instance, sadly so, are doing very bad and they have not been helped with a lot of detrimental issues in center cities as well. But some restaurants, chains, are doing very well because they are well organized for a new food delivery approach. So my point is that we are not pushing people to take new opportunities to adjust to the new situation. And I think that's very dangerous because you can go very far, very wrong and create a lot of unsustainable levels of debt. And I'm very worried no one is talking about it. Obviously, it's easier to keep your old habits, not take something new. 
but we cannot pay for that forever. Truly distorting the economy. So that part for me, I'm very worried and we will see what happens. I think that's a very fair point that you have, right? I mean, debt, and then obviously there's going to be inflation if we're printing this much money. This is not magical, right? Or a bubble. And there is a tech bubble that will have to burst because these things are not magical beings either, and they have to come back to some normality. This is not a new economy. Side effect of this as well, which to be honest, one could say is highly speculative as well, but it's actually interesting is the fact around Bitcoin and crypto and everything that's happening around that. You know, I'm fascinated. Obviously, it's gone roaring back. And in some ways, it has to do with this mistrust of governments now that are printing a ton of currency that are going to lead to inflation at the same time of having assets that might be actually even more stable than the assets that we've taken as stable for a very long time, times of very low inflation. So for me, that's quite interesting. And I wouldn't belay too much on what's happening in crypto, but there is a key element here that I think is quite structural in terms of how it's panning out. Yeah, I think that there is an understandable lack of trust in government right now on the markets in the value of the stocks, even the value of currency. Let's not forget the U.S. currency has been going down versus a basket of other currency pretty significantly. So if your bank account is flat, actually it's not flat versus the rest of the world. And another market that has been also pretty full of exuberance has been the housing market, pushing interest rate to the lowest level ever. It has helped fan the flames of the housing market. There was, however, some good reason in the way of housing markets going crazy in the sense that people are indeed moving and not speculating. They want to go to new places. And obviously, in the middle of a pandemic, not everyone is willing to sell their home. So less inventory is that usual. So there are some strong structural reasons that I feel are reasonable and represent how markets should react. But that part about interest rate very low, obviously, are not making things better because then suddenly everyone believes that they have more money to spend than they should. So that part, obviously, is also getting me worried. So housing market, Bitcoin... And I think maybe we can talk quickly about what happened with Wall Street bets, GameStop, Robinhood. Part of me feel very excited that retail investor is back. I think that's a good thing. Even two, three years ago, people were lamenting retail is 10, 20% at best of the market anymore. It has been going down for decades which is not a good thing if you have very little retail, if you have a lot of just index funds that people are following without thinking about what it means, and the rest is just hedge funds. So part of me feel happy that there is more retail investor. At the same time, it feels these investors are more joining it to play. I don't know if it's Russian roulette, but it's definitely the casino, and that's, of course, worrisome. You could argue GameStop is more the Russian roulette. Some other investments are a different story. Yeah, and, and there's a little bit of action-reaction. Obviously, you know, it's sort of going against the short sellers and the hedge funds. As a disclaimer, I am an investor in Robinhood, and so I won't say anything here relating to Robinhood and what's been going on. I think the position by Vlad, the CEO and founder, has been very clear on what actually happened. I do believe there's been too much fuel put into this fire by retail investors. So it's great that retail investors are back. It's great that it's democratized. And that was the original offer by plays like Robinhood, that it would get more democratized. But at the same time, I think it's time for one regulatory agents to revise some of the rules that are in play, like the VAR rule and all these things that are just 
totally antiquated, don't really fit the markets that we're in. At the same time, for us to have really big thoughtfulness around how much should one individual or individuals be exposed to public markets. So all good for the democratization. Great that we have more retail investors back. But I think we need a little bit more regulation. We need a little bit more of attention to details going forward. But, you know, I'm not so sure from that part because when I dug and I dug very quickly, it's one thing that shocked me is that part of the issue is how the market today is working. I mean, we are in 2021. You would expect these transactions settle very fast, microseconds. The VAR issue that we were talking about. But no, it can take days. <laughs> it can take days to set It's a two-day play, yeah. Yeah, and I saw in some cases, it's actually more than two days. It could be even close to a week. And I'm like, what world are we living in? <laughs> and the more you keep digging further how the stock market is working, how banks are working, how the central bank is working, how all of this is working, at least for me, from a tech background, you are discovering a world where they settle stuff as a matter of days. And this is actually the root cause of so many issues in the markets, not just right now with this example of GameStop and how it kind of squeezed Robinhood in the middle. But even 10 years ago, what happened, some of this was market reaction taking too long, banks not trusting each other because you don't have immediate settlements. If you have immediate settlement, a lot of things would be very different in terms of how you trust another party because you don't have to wait to decide if it was good or right, do they have the money or not? No, it's immediate. So part of me thinks that some of this, hopefully, and I saw the CEO of Robinhood making some of this point pretty smartly, that, yeah, we need to make change in how the market is working so that it's truly an efficient market and not a market run as if we were at the beginning of the 20th century, <laughs> to be frank. So for me, that was pretty interesting because by default, I would expect things are running well, but... The more you dig, especially in the finance industry, the more you discover some pretty bad stuff. And my point is that if you solve some of this, maybe you could have actually less regulation because some of this might only be needed because we are in a very dysfunctional market, but we try to make it look like a fully functional market. Clear. So switching maybe to our own personal stories for 2020, we look at you, the listeners of Tech Deciphered as our community. And so I think it's always good to share as well and to share our own personal and professional objectives and how life has moved. I don't know, Bertrand, do you want to go first? Talk about your personal life and, and professional life and how things have changed over the last year? Yes, with pleasure. On my side, I decided to move on and move from California, from Silicon Valley, to move to Washington State. So we moved a few months ago to the greater Seattle area. Specifically, we now live on Mercer Island between Seattle and Bellevue. And we really like it there so far, even if people keep telling us it's cold and rainy. Coming from Paris, France, having lived six years in Beijing, it's actually not that bad. So for those born in California, in the south of France, or maybe in Portugal, it will be bad. But for me, it's actually great. I'm very happy to finally go back to some seasons, not just a blue sky all the way, except your one day of orange sky as we lived in California. So for me, it was wanting something new. Also, prices of everything from housing to services are totally insane in California. And I feel that we are not getting back in exchange something of the right value. So for me, there was that part. The trade is not rational anymore. 
And you know, I've always been like, you're in the center of the tech universe, a lot of opportunity. It's worth it just from that angle. But with COVID and remote work and work from anywhere, I don't believe it's true anymore. And more important, I don't believe it's going to be true going forward and feeling and betting that habits we are getting used to right now are there for the long run. Yes, stuff will settle back and not to the extreme we are living right now, hopefully. Mm -hmm. But the habit to meet people remote, to work remotely with people, I think, are there to stay. And so for me, that necessity to live in Silicon Valley is simply not there anymore. And therefore, let's pick somewhere else. Obviously, there are a lot of other places people are considering. A lot of people in tech are looking at Texas, are looking at Florida. Personally, I wanted a place that's truly a tech hub. And Seattle with Microsoft, Amazon and the like, that's really an existing tech center, not a tech center that is becoming one, but already one. I don't want to be fully disconnected from the tech industry. I'm not the kind who can simply go in the middle of nowhere and be happy about it. For me, that was still important. And also staying close to Asia. I spent six years of my life in Asia. My wife is from Taiwan. So from us, a state that is still close to Asia, very Asian friendly, where you can find good Asian food was also a key criteria. So that was why we decided to move and pretty happy so far about it. Yeah, so I've gone a little bit a different route. I actually stayed in California and in Half Moon Bay, where in some ways I've been blessed of just living next to the ocean through shelter in place and actually having good weather most of the year. We've had a couple of storms this year, but certainly, you know, a lot of the people that talk about leaving California and going somewhere else, to your point, forget this whole notion of California has really great weather and it has great places to go to and it's a great place to live in. So in some ways... All of that is something that sometimes is, is disregarded, right? So I decided to stay most of the time here. My objective is to spend more time in Europe and using Portugal as my hub, obviously my home country and Lisbon in particular, spending maybe one to two months a year in Europe using Lisbon and Portugal as my hub. So it's been an interesting dynamic in terms of geography and, and what we're doing. Last year was a really rough year, not trying to overshare, but certainly a year that started immediately at the beginning of the year with some really complex news at a personal level, then evolved to a year where I was about to do a first close on my next fund and my next firm, and where sadly COVID hit and it was impossible to talk to anyone. Then if all of that wasn't enough, my father was you know, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in July. And so getting on a plane to Portugal, still being blessed to spend a few days with him, and then he passed. And then spending around a month in Portugal with my family and with friends. So it was generally a tough year. The great news of last year was I felt it was a very enriching year for me personally and professionally, where I learned a lot, where I discovered that I'm not a small extrovert, a small E. I'm both a strong E and a strong guy. I'm an ambivert. I need time for myself as well. A time where I was able to put my fundraising for my next fund back on the road. And the big news is hopefully by the time this goes live as a podcast, I will have launched my new firm and my new fund in venture capital. So really looking forward to that, really picking up where Strive Capital left it and just having a very different view on you know how much tech should you have in a venture capital firm spoiler alert a lot how humane should you be as a venture capital partner spoiler alert a lot so really looking forward to that new next step and also at a spiritual level we don't often talk about religion but you know it is important to say that i'm a practicing catholic and so in some ways 
my spiritual journey over the last year was a very deep one, very deep spiritual journey. So really, I can't complain about 2020. I think it was a very difficult year, but it was a year where I felt upwards and I felt that I've become a better person in that process. So really very thankful for everything that happened in my life. Very rough year for you, you know, but as you say, it's quite fantastic to see how you are rebounding from some low points and looking forward to what's next. Maybe looking forward to 2021 and what our outlook is. Again, you know, episodes 11, 12, and 13 have a very broad range scenario analysis and view on the 2020, so we won't try to repeat it, but really focus more on the shorter term. 2020 was a total curveball in baseball analogy, a black swan. 2021 seems to be a little bit more predictable. We shall see. So starting with the big topic, obviously, COVID, I think finally we're going to get governments that get their act semi-together, not fully together, but semi-together and vaccination will start ramping up faster, etc. For me, the big question mark is what's happening with all these mutations and that we're seeing in the market. In the market? In the market. Effectively, we now have a COVID <laughs> market. So <laughs> it's all these variations that we're seeing how well addressed they will be by current vaccines. Will we have to have uh, new vaccines for these variations? Will we have to be taking vaccines every six months, every 12 months? Where is this going to head? Is this going to look a little bit like the flu by the end of this year and you take your flu shot and you're okay to go? What's your view on this? I was somewhat optimistic when I saw first results of the vaccines, especially the Pfizer, Moderna, 95% effectiveness. That sounds fantastic, great, <laughs> beyond belief in such a short time, fastest ever in history of humanity, you develop vaccines in six months with that level of success and that you are not just developing them, but start scaling them in parallel. So just amazing. It gives you trust in science if need be. <laughs> I don't need, but it's good to see that. However, what you can see is that some stuff are changing. We might have done uh, the most surgically precise vaccines, but it might come with an issue is that they might be too precise. So now that we see more and more variants everywhere and we seem to see situations where these variants are resisting to some vaccines or some previous level of herd immunity, people were already infected by covid get it again, in some cases, in some cities where they thought they reached herd immunity, bad luck, it's not working. So that part is getting me more worried that, yeah, we are vaccinating, but it might be vaccines that work, but might not work in six, nine or 12 months from now. So I definitely have trouble to believe we are out of the woods at this stage. I have trouble to believe we'd be out of the wood by summer. I think we would get in a better place because we have vaccines and infrastructure in place, because we have learned more about the ability of these vaccines to work or do not work, and because now we are very fast to move and create new vaccines if need be. I hope we will have learned some lessons But at the same time, as a result, I have trouble to think we will be fully vaccinated, all of us, by end of year, including kids. And we will have some needs for new vaccines very quickly after that. And so that means that I guess it will be more like the flu. The worry is that the flu, in a way, is still pretty nice to get versus COVID in terms of experience and risk of dying. 
And so we will see. I think we'll have to learn to live with it and with some level of risk. What I hope is that we don't have to live in a masked world, in a travel-less world in 2022, in 2023, because then it means we are really in a new planet. And even if digital is helping us, we see it in new ways and in more streamlined ways. There is some stuff like going back with friends, going back with family, going back with traveling that I'm definitely missing and will hope to come back to at some point. And the last piece is that it's not as if we have found a lot of medication. So we talk a lot about vaccines, but what about basic medications at work? Because if we have that and it's really working, yeah, vaccines are good, but at least if they are not working, we have ways to treat you efficiently. And it has improved, to be clear. I'm not saying it has not improved. It has improved, especially on the process and understanding the illness. But in terms of true dramatic change in terms of medicines at work, I think we are still very early. So maybe that's the breakthrough we should be focusing on in order for us to get out of this or at least mitigate it once we get it so that if it becomes truly less life-threatening, even in the face of mutants, then actually we can begin to truly come back. But at this stage, I'm expecting more of the same for 2021. We have more experience, more expertise, we are more used to navigate in this new world, but I'm not expecting going back to 2019. Yeah, I have a similar view. I think I'm maybe a little bit more optimistic on one or two areas, but in general agree that we won't be in what I would call flu-like cadence, where every year you take your flu shot and you're good for that year in principle. I don't think we'll be in there until 2022 or 2023. So we have at least one more year of this yo-yo now, probably a vaccination type yo-yo. I am more optimistic that I do think the vaccination will solve a lot of issues. It will protect a lot of people. And so we will see a world that little by little will go back to normal, even in markets that have been going back and forth between lockdowns and shelter in places. That will lead to a more complex world as well, where I think we will have the world of the haves and haves nots and the two dimensions to that world, to the world of the haves and have-nots. One, as an individual, people who will have taken vaccinations will likely be more protected. Questions because of variations, how well protected they will be, but certainly more and more protected. People that still haven't won't, and so their lifestyles will probably necessarily be different. We haven't observed that yet at scale. I think Israel's probably going to give us uh, the first hints of that, but they're going so fast, they might get everyone vaccinated, so that might not be a great proxy from the perspective of individuals. But it then brings us to the second dimension of the haves and have-nots, which are actually states and countries, and the countries that will do vaccination faster and the countries that will prepare their population better not just in terms of their overall protections, as we were discussing earlier, Asia has done a great job, but also in terms of vaccination. Those countries will be havens, and then people will go to go there and go through the pain of two weeks of quarantine, but then know that they can have quasi-normal life after that. And I think that's going to be with us for a bit. So we're going to have a bit of have-haves not for a period of time into 2022, in my view, and we'll see where we end up. We'll see where it will all end up. The part where I'm positive, just to sort of end my remarks, is... To your point, I do believe we've learned, and so processes are now better, certainly in terms of preparing vaccines, figuring out the approval for those vaccines, et cetera, et cetera. So all of that will go much faster. So the process itself of vaccination 
and of medications over time, et cetera, will become faster in my view. I think science will become faster for this and we will have leapfrogged it in any case. So it's a really great moment for humanity in some ways. And I'm also very positive that the governments that have so much failed us, certainly in Western countries, will get their act together and that we will have increased velocity of deploying vaccination, of having the logistics to do it, of having that logistics set up for their vaccines that might be needed if there's variants, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm very hopeful and very optimistic about that. We have the Western world I talk about. There is obviously the Asian world that managed to get the virus completely out of their countries. But then there is the rest of the world. And it's very worrisome to think that based on a lot of analysis to fully vaccinate 7 billion people, we are talking about 2023. And we are not even talking about additional injections every year so that you can adjust to a new variant. So we saw that. The world is not going back to normal in terms of travel, in terms of mass events, and in terms of suffering, obviously. So something that's pretty worrisome. The only good news is that it looks like a lot of these countries outside Asia, Europe, US, seem to have done a pretty decent job, actually, by quite a lot of metrics. So that's the good news. But they will get vaccines much later, so it will take them more time to get back to track. And again, we don't even know if these vaccines will fully protect us in a year from now. I'm also very hopeful on the big learnings about manufacturing and distribution. So if we have to do more of this, we are in good place. I also think I read in quite a few papers that we talk about how the world become more digital by five or ten years. It looks like the same has happened with infectious disease, our ability to fight them, that we basically managed to go faster by five or 10 years in a year thanks to COVID. So in a way, if we want to be positive, that's going to protect us better before the real big one. <laughs> yes. If you believe COVID was actually not so bad after all in the grand scheme of things, Yes, pretty infectious, but death rate, not so bad. We definitely know some disease that can go much worse. And we have seen that across Asia. I believe if one reason Asia has been doing so well is also they went through SARS, they went through MERS, they went through a lot of disease that basically gave them a lesson that unfortunately we didn't really got in Europe and US in some ways. So I'm hopeful that what we are going through is also going to be a big lesson for the rest of us and will better protect us for the next disease, both in terms of how prepared you have to be to how you need to react and work. By default, don't question masks, have masks in stock, have a testing system in place. But also we have all these new war machine of building very fast vaccines and releasing them at scale very fast. So that's the positive side in me that at least... And moving fast maybe to the technology side, and, and we won't necessarily go in depth in all these topics. Certainly some of these topics would lead us to full episodes, which we'll probably develop in the next few months. But just going a little bit into rapid fire mode, what's going to happen to tech in 2021? And the first one is, we've already talked a little bit about the bubble. And so I guess the question in everyone's mind is, if there is a bubble, which I think I believe there is a bubble in public markets, I think you do as well. 
Will it burst in 2021 or not? If I'd put a stick on the ground, I don't think it will burst this year. There's still more stimulus to come, certainly in the US. There's still more stimuli to come in other parts of the world. There's still a lot of intervention to the point that we we're making early from governments, both from a currency perspective and also from a stimulus perspective. So it's unlikely, in my opinion, to happen this year, the burst. But I do think it will have to happen. If I had to put a stick in the ground, likely next year, but who knows? But the game of chairs will need to, at some point, stop. And there will be a lot of people that won't have a chair to sit on, for sure. Yes, I definitely agree there is a bubble. What timing is a big question. I'm like you, I don't believe it will happen in 2021. My take at this stage is that it will take more time to burst. A few reasons to that. One is a very, very low interest rate. They have never raise interest rate too fast in the past, usually over three, five, <laughs> even 10 years. So that part, I don't think will move fast. Printing money. I mean, how fast will they really <laughs> kill all the money that was printed, destroy it? Looking back in the past episodes of quantitative easing and the like, I mean, it takes them five to 10 years to start to consider to remove this money in circulation. So I'm very worried about that. We have stimulus plans, lots of debts. <laughs> Do we expect them to pay back the debt? I don't think so. So in a way, I'm thinking that surplus of money is here to stay for the next five years plus. The question is, will it move somewhere else than stock market in general and tech in specific? The faster we get out of COVID, the more the money will redistribute itself outside of tech. But beyond that, we know there is already probably some level of bubble in the housing market. We see a bubble in crypto. So one of my worries is that I'm not sure where the money will go. It could go beyond tech and housing, obviously, all these more traditional sectors. At the same time, when talking to a lot of investors, there is also that believe that some of these guys have truly missed the boat and that forced digitalization, it's also pretty clear that the profits are going to the big tech companies. So yes, they're overvalued, but where are the profits coming from? And you see that connection. The big tech companies have insane level of profit, way beyond everybody else. So yeah, so that's the question. If the money is here to stay, where will it go? So for me, that's a question mark for the people. The other topic that's very much of the day is obviously regulatory environment. We've talked already about regulatory environment in the context of stock exchanges and public equity markets, so we won't go back into that. But obviously, there's regulatory environment for tech in general. To your point, if tech is taking the disproportionate amount of profits that are in the market, if people are flowing their savings, artered savings into public equities of tech companies, if everything is going into tech, there is a natural discussion around this tech a good actor or not? Are tech players good actors or not? Or are they just taking too much of the money of the world, too much of the profits of the world, too much of our own money? And there's obviously the several layers to regulation. There's layers around regulation that relate to undue power, antitrust laws, and the enforcement of that, which I think you will see a lot more going forward in many markets and more interventionist type plays. But also there's discussion around other topics like data privacy obviously became a big deal with the whole discussion around social networks in the past, around free speech, obviously, with the things that have been happening around Parler, around Twitter, around you know the discussions that we saw with the former president of the United States, Donald Trump. So where is this regulation all headed? Are we going to have more and more regulatory intervention 
in the US, more and more regulatory intervention in the European Union, where we've seen a more interventionist path taken by the European Commission, or the opposite, because the economies need to scale again, there will be a little bit of a step back, and let's see what happens before we destroy the winners that everyone is putting their savings on. <laughs> so where will we end in terms of regulatory environment? That's a great question. What's interesting is that the same questions are probably happening everywhere. China, US, EU, different answers, obviously. But we can see these questions happening everywhere. On crypto, China has been very strong, very hard early on. US has been very difficult. If you look at big tech, China went pretty big. I mean, suddenly Jack Ma disappears. We talk about Alibaba and Group being somewhat nationalized. This is pretty big news and this is pretty hardcore. And I guess a lot of us were seeing it coming in US, in EU, and suddenly in China it happened in a day without a lot of warning. So it's interesting to see that happening. I don't know how far it will go. What I can guess is that if you look back, tech history is a breakdown of AT&T. There was antitrust against IBM. For sure, there were some actions against Microsoft was supposed to be broken up until they won their appeal. But my point is that the company lose, like AT&T, who ended up broken down or one like Microsoft, it had a big impact on their capacity to innovate because you are under constant pressure, you are externally as well as internally because you don't want to repeat the same mistake again. Or if it was not a mistake, to have the same risk of spending a decade fighting that. So my point is that I think it will definitely slow down the capacity to innovate, but also to acquire some companies. So that will have an impact. And we have to think about all angles of the impact. If it means less exit opportunities for VCs, that might not be so great. At the same time, you could argue, and I would argue, that it's better to be independent, do IPO and be successful that end up selling the business given the choice. So I think it's a better opportunity, but not every company is able to do that, to stand on their own. So that's raising a lot of questions connected to not just free speech, but overall the election process, at least in democratic countries. How does it work in a system where everyone can say everything and can be heard by everyone? That's a big difference. It's not just your friends and family or the local bar, but it's the whole world. That's a big difference that has created new issues we didn't think about. I don't think any player was really bad in tech, but I believe a lot were probably very young and not very smart in their analysis of the risk and their own impact on the world. So I think all of this is changing and it's never going to be the same, whatever is the outcome of some of these very active regulatory process that are happening right now. In tech now, there's nowhere to hide. This is not some cute thing happening on the side. It's front and center. The biggest stocks are tech. Everything is tech right now. Obviously, we could spend another hour, two hours talking about what we think is going to happen in 2021. As we mentioned before, episodes 11, 12, 13 have a pretty holistic view on the 2020s. And we've already shared a lot of our views on the post-COVID world in episodes 9A and 9B. So maybe going very quickly, obviously, there's a lot of questions on people's mind. What's going to happen to financing in private markets, exits, are SPACs here to stay? What's happening in the debt markets? How is this going to scale? Are we seeing the end of Silicon Valley? There's been articles talked about that as well. Is Silicon Valley becoming a mindset rather than a place? Are we seeing the emergence of EU and India? All of that, 
could be and will be a full episode for us. So we'll probably work on that in the coming weeks and we'll come to you with an episode that will focus very much in the venture capital landscape and in private equity landscape and how it will move, not just from a geographical standpoint, but also in terms of the landscape. So maybe to end our episode today and to end season one, talk a little bit about how do we see this going into season two. And it's still early days for us in thinking through and brainstorming what's next, but a couple of things are coming clear. One We're coming to Clubhouse, so we're going to use a hopefully very short hiatus between season one and season two to come to you on Clubhouse, hear you engage. And so stay tuned. There will be some news in the coming weeks of our presence there, creating a club and also having our own show. What else, Bertrand, is ahead for us for Tech Deciphered season two? I think Clubhouse for us is pretty natural, given that you are listening to our podcast. Uh, podcasting has been our approach to reach out to you guys. So we cannot ignore <laughs> a new medium in the audio space. And at this stage, we see that more as complementary to our podcast, a way to be able to be in, in more direct live contact with you in the audience. So that's exciting. I think we will have to think more and reflect about what was good in season one, what we could do better. And hopefully we hear from you guys in terms of ideas, not just in terms of new themes, but also in terms of how we could do overall better. Drop us a message by email, on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Please don't hesitate because we definitely want to shape season two with your feedback. That will make it even more exciting for all of us. And that concludes our episode 21. Thank you, Bertrand. In this episode, we look at the very difficult, dramatic year of 2020. We also shared some of our views, probably very ambivalent views and outlook for 2021. And this is also our last episode for season one, as we've referred to. So we look forward to hearing from you through social networks, through Twitter, LinkedIn, send us an email, give us your ideas, not only for themes, but as Bertrand also mentioned, share with us your views on what's working and what's not. What else would you like to see on Tech Deciphered? We hope to come to a place near you on Clubhouse and other social networks in the coming weeks. And we look forward to bringing you season two. See you very soon. Thank you, Nino. You can check the latest on our website, decipheredshow.com. You can connect with us on Twitter at bschmidt and at ngpedro. As a disclaimer, these are our own opinions. We're not representing the views of any company. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe, give us five stars, or leave a review on Apple Podcast app or your favorite app, which will help other people to discover Tech Decipher. Thank you for listening. See you next time.